Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys this morning. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, go ahead and start turning to Deuteronomy chapter 12. And if you're heading there, I have a very important question to ask you all as we start this morning. I want you to really think about this. Do any of you consider yourselves weird? There's some hands up. Yeah, raise a hand. Who's, who's considers themselves? Okay. I kind of think everyone's hand should be up personally. You might be nudging your neighbor saying, why did your hand not go up? I know who you are. Uh, we're all weird in our own ways, I think. I don't mean weird in a, I wear onesies, pajamas to church every Sunday kind of way, though if that's you, no judgment on my part. Glad you're here with us this morning. I don't think anyone is. I mean weird in that we all have uh, certain habits, likes, quirks that are different than other people. For example, you may have heard of like weird food things that people have. Me, I for one, I don't like cooked fruit, which means I'm very un-American and I don't enjoy apple pie or cobbler or things like that. And I'm seeing some of your faces, but I eat fruit the way God intended it to be eaten. Uncooked, all right? That's biblical. Look in Genesis 2. I don't have scripture support for that. Uh, Little weirder, my father-in-law is with us here today, and I've heard stories that his dad would eat chocolate cake covered in country gravy. That's weird, though. I haven't tried it, but on the surface, that sounds weird to me. My, my wife, Taylor, has the weird-slash-incredible ability to uh, kill any flying bug within two swats. It's amazing. She can't hit a baseball to save her life. If there's a flyer mosquito in the room, that thing is doomed. She can bring it down. Some of you are weird. Some of you think running is fun. <laughs> What's wrong with you? I don't know why you do that. Uh, there is, unfortunately, a large majority of people in this room that think that 1985's The Goonies is actually a good movie. You are weird and both wrong in that opinion, and I would love to have a discussion with you. Uh, Goonies definitely say die. So... We all have weird things. I'd love to hear what your weird thing is after service today. Please don't focus on that for the next 40 minutes and not listen to uh, the actual sermon that's coming. But why start with this important character-defining question of what makes you weird? Well, being weird, or put another way, being set apart and different from the world around you is exactly what the Christian walk is all about. Those of us who have put our identity not in ourselves, but in being followers of Jesus Christ, we're weird at the end of the day. We have a, a different worldview, a different morality, a different purpose, a different hope than the rest of the world. We love our enemies. We forgive those who wrong us. We recognize it's not about how good it is that saves us, but it's about the good work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection that saves the weird Christian lifestyle isn't scared of death because we know what awaits, uh, awaits us is eternity in the presence of our creator who loves us. The weird Christian stands up for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the outcast, the sinner, because God stands up for those people. And when we minister to them, it's as if we're ministering to Jesus himself. So where we are in the book of Deuteronomy, what this is is really the beginning of that journey for God's people to be set apart, to be weird, to really, the word we're looking at here is holy, is to be holy. Holy is a big Christian word, so I want to make sure we all understand what it means. 
when we use the word holy, yes, it has to do with goodness and and we think of like perfection and all that, but think different, set apart, separate from sin, weird compared to everything else. So we're called to be holy because God is holy. He is holy in that he is all good. There is no evil or sin within him. He is holy in that he is set apart from his creation. God created everything we see, you, me, the trees, grass, the flies that tailor wax out of the air, and we can touch those things, but we can't touch God because he is separate from creation while still being the creator of all things. And because God is holy and he wants to have a relationship with us who are by nature unholy, he calls us to be different, to be set apart from sin, from the ways of the world, from worshiping anything that isn't him because he is the one true holy God of all things. So as we've seen so far in Deuteronomy and knowing the history of where we are in the Bible, quick refresher, Israel has been freed from slavery in Egypt through the power of God working through Moses. They've been uh, put into a covenant relationship with God, not because of what they did, but why? Do you remember from last week's sermon? Because God loves them. Good job, maybe. Um, Maybe that was two sermons ago, I don't remember. It's because God loves them is why they're in a relationship, not because they did anything to do it. They failed the first time that they're supposed to enter the promised land, and they didn't trust God. So after 40 years of God taking care of them in the desert, the younger generation of Israel prepares to take the land their parents should have. And so Moses, in the first four chapters of of Deuteronomy, is giving a reminder of them. There should be a a slide that's kind of an overview of Deuteronomy. In chapter 5, he reiterates the Ten Commandments, the basis of the covenant relationship of Yahweh with his people that shows the character and holiness of God. And since those Ten Commandments, as Todd pointed out in his sermon, and and, and as we're kind of getting to uh, today, Moses is basically expounding on what and how the Ten Commandments are are to be lived out the rest of of this book. So chapters 6 and 11 uh, are about the importance of loving God alone, which is our our first commandment, right? Chapters 12 and 13, which we'll see today, will cover both of the, the, the first and second commandment, so also not to have idols. Chapters 14 and 15 are showing how to live holy, set-apart lives in the land of Canaan, of of how to revere and represent God properly, which corresponds to the third commandment, to not take the Lord's name in vain, which is about more than just words, but our our actions as well. Chapters 15 and 16, that's where we'll end today, uh, will also cover talking about keeping the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. And then in in the weeks to come, uh, with Mike and Todd, I'm not spoiling anything because it's in the Bible, you're allowed to read it ahead of time, We see the fifth commandment, honoring parents or authorities in chapters 16 and 18, not committing murder in chapters 19 through 22, not committing adultery in chapters 22 and 23, not stealing in chapters 23 and 25, not giving false testimony in chapters 24 and 25, and finally not coveting in chapter 25. So how cool is it that God is giving examples and case law to help his people know how to remain a people set apart for him? That's what's happening and the, the, the rest of the book of Deuteronomy for us. Now, this is a massive amount of scripture uh, that we're looking at today, and we're, get, we're gonna look at Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 16, 17. I'm not going to read all of that. I practiced, and it took me 12 to 13 minutes to read all of it. Um, I'll cover select passages, but I, I wanna use this as an encouragement to you to be reading what's come before and what's coming next, because we don't always have time to read every verse that we're covering up here. It's not that we don't take the word of God seriously. It's just we we got to get and explain it to you as well, unless 
if you want, I'm always offering, if you want an hour and 20 minute sermon, I'm prepared to go. No hands for that one. Okay. Um, but I, I think just with the passages, what we'll look at within this, um, we'll still see how God's word is living and active. It's applicable to us who live in a new covenant relationship on the other side of the cross, where at first we might read something like and, and be like, how does this apply to me? Like, why, why do I need to know about this? I'll be honest, I was intimidated when I was first assigned this text uh, to preach, but man, is the Bible good. I, I think there's a lot we can take away from this section of Scripture. So uh, let, let's pray, and then we will we'll get into covering five long chapters of Scripture here. Lord, I, I thank you that your words, your love, uh, and your faithfulness mean just as much to us today as it did to uh, the Israelites 3,500 years ago. I pray you'd speak through me uh, today and open the hearts of this congregation to hear what we need to hear. May we be a people who are, are weird, set apart, marked as holy for you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today I have three points, pretty easy. It's just what my sermon title is. It's going to help guide us through this session. So in chapter 12, we see that there's to be one sanctuary. Chapter 13, we read about worshiping only one God. And in chapters 14 through 17, it gives us stipulations of what it means to be one holy people. So I want to read uh, Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 14 to start as we talk about how Israel will be different with one sanctuary. And as we read this, I'll just point this out. Uh, this is something Eric Wood and I are very passionate about. When you see the word Lord in all capital letters, what that is is actually God's name, Yahweh. Okay, that's the name God gives to Moses at the burning bush. And we feel like there should be a Yahweh standard version of the Bible. Instead of Lord, it should have Yahweh in there. So when you see capital L-O-R-D, I'm going to read Yahweh for us instead. Okay, I just, it's not that we're not taking the Lord's name in vain by not doing that. I just think it's a good thing to do because that's what's there. Ready? Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 14, follow along. Or it should be on the, the screen behind me. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall top down, chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship Yahweh your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that Yahweh your God will choose uh, out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before Yahweh your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which Yahweh your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that Yahweh your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to Yahweh. 
And you shall rejoice before Yahweh your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that was within your town since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that Yahweh will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. So, as I mentioned, chapter 12 is making clear that God is the only one to be worshipped. God knows what Israel is going to encounter when they enter the promised land, namely the worship of many different false gods. And throughout the conquest in the book of Joshua, that's the next book after Deuteronomy, the book of Judges, which follows that, through the establishment of the kingly line in Jerusalem, the Israelites will constantly battle against worship to false gods, specifically through idol worship. So in this opening section, God is commanding them to not be like the other cities, the other nations, in how they worship. What's really happening here, to give a big picture of, of what is going on in this passage, is this is pointing us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden, God gave Adam sanctuary, rest, and dominion over all the animals. And in the Promised Land, God is giving rest for his people, dominion over the pagan nations, and a sanctuary to worship and be in relationship with him. So the, the Israelites, what, what, what's supposed to be happening is they're supposed to act as the new Adam, and Israel, the promised land, is supposed to be the new Eden. Eventually, the one sanctuary where God will be worshipped is the temple that is built in Jerusalem. That's going to come several generations later. Right now, what they have, they have what's called the tabernacle. So it's, it's this big tent that they first built back in Exodus at Mount Sinai when they escaped from Egypt. And the tabernacle is a picture of Eden as well, and it travels with the people while they await the land that God has promised. And then once they get there, the temple will be a permanent tabernacle, which is actually a picture of the throne room of God in heaven. So I think this is amazing. God has been demonstrating since the beginning of his creation his desire and plan for how we will be in relationship with him and how it will ultimately play itself out in eternity to come. God says when, when they enter the promised land, they're going to find high places, altars under trees, and ashram poles, which are, are basically like these, these wooden log poles uh, designed to worship a fertility god. What these nations would do is, is they would walk up a hill, some of you might like to walk up hills, and when they're at the top of a the hill, they think, hey, I'm closer to God than I normally am, whatever God they serve, I should build an altar here so that I'm closer, like God will, it'll be easier for that God to hear my worship. Or sometimes they go under a nice large tree that gave lots of shade and they set up a shrine there because it's, it's a good place. It's a comforting place of rest. So there would be hundreds, if not thousands of places where people would worship their gods. Yahweh says, I, I don't want you to do that. I'm going to choose one place in the land of Israel where I want you to gather as a people of God and to hear my word being read and to praise and worship as a community. Well, why does he choose one place? I mean, shouldn't we worship God wherever we are? Well, yes, we should. But the danger here uh, comes in verse 8. If you look at, at, at 12.8, it says, uh, the idea is that if there are people over there, there's people over here, there's people way far off worshiping God at all these different altars and shrines, they end up worshiping God in a way that is right in their own eyes. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, what comes next you're familiar with this language. Every story about the sin of Israel, which there are a lot in Judges, begins with the people were doing what was right in their own eyes. 
The people became their own gods because they weren't following the one true God. And the danger in doing this and not having a central place to worship God altogether, hearing his word preached and explained, it, the, the extreme example of this is at the end of chapter 12. Let's look at chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. When Yahweh your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship Yahweh your God in that way. For every abominable thing that Yahweh hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. The pagan worshipers had decided the best way to worship their God was to sacrifice their own children in fire to that God. Now, this is evil, evil stuff. If Israel worships however they see fit, wherever they are, this is the path that they could go down. So God says, get rid of all the altars and idols that might seem right to others, but are not right in my covenant. Knowing the rest of the story, we know that Israel fails at getting rid of all the altars and high places and idols and ashram poles. There are times that they, they eliminate a majority of them, but not all of them. Solomon eventually is the one who builds the temple, that, that permanent place where they're supposed to come and worship God in Jerusalem when there's finally peace in the land, but he still keeps idols around. He still keeps altars to other gods around. He listens to his foreign wives, of which he had far too many, and lets them keep their gods because he's concerned about pleasing them. He's not concerned about pleasing Yahweh. Eventually, that, that temple is destroyed when God's people are taken by the Assyrians and Babylonians before a new one is graciously constructed. God lets them come back after a 70-year exile, and they rebuild the temple. That new temple is built, but really what all this temple language about, what it's actually pointing to is Jesus. Jesus says in John 2.19, he will tear down and rebuild the temple in three days. He's talking about himself though, his own body. He is the true temple of God because he is God. And while he is torn down on the cross, he dies. He did not faint. He did not take a nap. He is resurrected three days later, which allows us to no longer have a single location to worship him, but we now worship him in spirit and in truth, as he tells a Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Now, I don't think we at GBC are at risk of the extremes of sacrificing our children in fire to God, like the Canaanite worshipers were doing in verse 31. But we do want to make sure we are worshiping God in ways that are acceptable and pleasing to him. I mean, that makes sense, right? Well, how do we know what is good and acceptable and pleasing to God? How do we know what honors him? It's pretty easy. We, we get that answer in the Bible, right? God has told us that when we gather together, we should sing songs of joy and gladness and praise to him. He's told us we should pray. He's told us to read the scriptures. He's told us that we should have the scriptures taught and explained to us. And we strive to worship God biblically here at GBC. We have Bible in our name for a reason, right? And Bible is kind of central to every aspect of worship we do. But sometimes when we're on our own, we might get other ideas like Israel did. We could say, well, every other Sunday I'll go to church, but 
we live in the most gorgeous place on planet Earth, right? The Northwest. God spent a little more time creating this place than anywhere else. We all know it. It's true. It's not in the Bible. Somewhere. Second Ezekiel. But in the in-between Sundays of going to church, I'll go to the beach or I'll hike up Mount Hood and I'll, I'll worship God there, right? When I go on my beach walks and my mountain hikes, I'll say, man, God, what a beautiful creation you've made. This is the greatest place on planet Earth. I'll, I'm going to praise you for it. Thank you for doing this. So you're going to church on the one hand, and you're having your, your, your nature time on the other, and you're honoring God in both. But that's not what God said to do. What God said was, don't give up the habit of meeting together, right? You see, if we start making up our own ways of worshiping and living for God's glory, we'll inevitably get it wrong. And so we want to orientate ourselves according to the scriptures. And in the New Testament, it's not one place of worship anymore, is it? It's the one person that you worship. The place has been replaced by the person of Jesus. He is the new temple. He is the meeting place between God and us. He is the one that we find rest and sanctuary and dominion over all things as the second Adam who actually kept the commands of God. And so we can worship Jesus in other places around Gresham and around the world as we, as we pray every, every morning for those uh, people. But, and we do that because we worship in spirit and in truth, back to John 4. But there should be a unity of our worship as directed here in Deuteronomy and the rest of the Bible that leads us to worship together in a community, as a body of believers, as temples of the Holy Spirit who worship as one in spirit and in truth. Israel was to have one sanctuary where they worship God. They were set apart and different because they didn't have idols or high places where they worshiped. Because God is spirit, there was to be no physical thing to worship. We have Jesus as our sanctuary, who is the mediator between us and the Father, so we can worship in spirit and in the truth of how he wants us to honor him. Chapter 13, our, our next point here, gives us three examples of how we may be tempted to serve false gods, but we, like the Israelites, are only or to only worship the one true God. I'm going to read all of chapter 13 here, and we'll break it down. Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For Yahweh your God is testing you to know whether you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after Yahweh your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which Yahweh your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is your own soul entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which we either, neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. 
You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities, which Yahweh your God has given you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle, with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to Yahweh your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand that Yahweh may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of Yahweh your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today, and doing what is right in the sight of Yahweh your God. So here in chapter 13, God is giving examples of how Israel may be tempted to worship anything other than him, going against the first commandment to have no other gods. In the first case, he says there may be prophets or dreamers who come and do uh, some sort of miraculous sign as proof that they should listen to them. We've already seen this happen in Israel's history. If you go back to Exodus, Pharaoh's magicians are able to imitate to some degree a couple of the first plagues. They stop pretty soon after. But it can be enticing for us to listen to someone and follow someone who seems to have all the answers or, or who can do something that seems extraordinary. In the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, Peter, and John are constantly warning about being on guard against false teachers. That, that's basically what's happening here. In 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4 says, or Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, or I like the translation that says, but having ears that want to be tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We've seen this happening in churches 3,500 years ago here, 2,000 years ago since the establishment of the church and in the church today, right? People will leave and find a church that continues to preach about something, the one thing they most want to hear, whether it's railing against a particular sin or calling for some sort of Christian nationalism or has the same view of the end times as you do. But we should be seeking, above all else, to find churches who make the preaching of the gospel and the main point of the text be the main point of our sermons. If you remember from our time in Galatians, Paul writes in his introduction, uh, Galatians 1, 8 through 9, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is similar to the language we're seeing here uh, in Deuteronomy 13, 5, the command to purge the evil from your midst. Even tonight, if an angel appeared before you in your dreams to give you some sort of great spiritual insight, if it goes against this book that God has preserved and kept for us as his perfect word, you ignore that angel. You listen to God who speaks to you every time you open up these pages. So that's our first example. And the second example, things get a little more personal and emotionally difficult. Sometimes family members, spouses, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, 
best friends will try to persuade us to believe something contrary to what we know to be true of God. Remember, I, I mentioned King Solomon earlier. Wisest king to ever live, but incredibly foolish when it came to allowing his pagan wives to influence and manipulate him into worshiping their false gods. Solomon was too emotionally tied to say no to them. And that, that's why it can be very difficult for non-Christians and Christians to be in romantic relationships. It's not impossible, but often it's easier to follow in a worldview that's not God's than to convince an unrepentant sinner to follow in God's ways. I think in the wake of the sexual politics of our world over the last several decades, we've seen this play out. A family who has a member come out as gay or, or, or transgender in an attempt to love and accept them will abandon their faith to support them instead of loving them by first loving God. And this is not me saying that we shouldn't love LGBTQ people. We absolutely should. And we should absolutely preach the good news of the gift of salvation and forgiveness of sin as we would to anyone else, as I'm preaching to you here today, if you've not yet made that decision. But we can't allow ourselves to forsake the truth and need for our sins to be reckoned with through the work of Jesus on the cross because we are worried it might be offensive to someone we love. The gospel is offensive. I don't know if you're aware of that. It is. The heart of the gospel is saying you are wrong. You cannot save yourself, and you need to stop identifying the world uh, in something, or you need to find your identity in something other than yourself. And, and that's offensive to all of our sinful, prideful natures. But it's more offensive to think that our picture of earthly love and acceptance is greater than the love that surpasses all understanding and allows us to be reconciled to God even though we have lived in rebellion to him. Jesus in, in Luke 14, 26 and 27 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This sounds like we're supposed to hate ourselves and our families, which obviously we are not supposed to do that. But what Jesus is saying is that we uh, are to love him so superiorly to how we love everything else, and we follow him above all else, that it's like we hate our own lives and, and our families in comparison. It's because we understand he alone is worth full allegiance as the only true holy God. Are, are you hearing echoes of Deuteronomy 13, these ideas in, in Jesus' teaching and what Paul's saying? If your family is trying to get you to forsake Jesus for something else, you don't listen to them. It doesn't matter that they're family. Deuteronomy says you go as so far as to stone them so that no one else would want to participate in such a wicked act as having you worship anything other than God. Now, I am not commanding you here today to go grab stones and start stoning people, okay? We don't have the sword to deal with such matters today, but we have been given the keys of the kingdom. And here's what I mean by that, is that we have been given church discipline to use if there is someone among us enticing us to forsake God. Jesus tells you in Matthew, in Matthew 18 that we approach them privately first about their sin and we urge them to repent. And if they don't, we go with one or two others, urge them to repent. And if they don't do that, we take them to the church and urge them to repent. And if they still don't repent, then we treat them as if they are unsaved. Paul echoes this idea in 1 Corinthians 5, giving the church as a whole, not just an individual, but the church as a whole, the charge to disengage in fellowship in communion with them, 
if they refuse to repent. So we do not stone people, but we treat them as someone who needs to be truly transformed by the gospel because they are choosing eternal death instead of choosing the forgiveness of God. In the final example of Deuteronomy 13, things are so bad a whole city is worshiping false gods, and Israel may be tempted to go in with the crowd and follow suit. The wording here, it's harsh. It's, it's, it's a part that both Christians and non-Christians alike struggle with. The command is to utterly destroy the city and everything in it if it is seeking to only serve false gods. Now, why is this command given? Well, let me give you an illustration that, that's always helpful to me when it comes to this matter. I want you to imagine someone who has a cancerous tumor. Some of us, we can't because that hits close to home. It's been us ourselves. If a doctor ran tests and discovered a golf ball-sized tumor in your body, what would they say? Let's do nothing and hope that it gets better? Let's take a tiny portion and we'll call it good? By no means, right? No, they wouldn't do that. been reading Romans this week. What they would do is they say, we're going to take that whole thing out, get all of it out, and we're going to remove the cells around it to make sure that that cancer is done and gone forever, right? That's how you get rid of it, so it doesn't stay there and come back and kill you. Well, Israel is about to embark on becoming a set-apart nation, a different holy people, as an example for the world of what it means to be in relationship with Yahweh. If there is a place so evil and cancerous, it needs to be removed. But even with that explanation, you might still be thinking, well, this still sounds harsh. This just does not sound fair. A couple replies to that. In terms of fairness, the true unfairness in the world is that God saves anyone. I'm serious. The fact that God is super unfair. Why, why would a holy, perfect, good God allow any of us to be in relationship with him? We are sinful. We are selfish. We would rather choose to worship ourselves or something else other than him, but God. The greatest words in the universe, right? But God, in his rich mercy and grace, loved us while we were still sinners and has provided the means and way for us to be in union with him. And how did he do that? By being unfair and pouring his wrath not out on us, but on his one and only son, Jesus, the only person who was without sin, who was in perfect union with the Father because he is God. So God sent himself to sacrifice himself so that we can unfairly receive his unconditional love and forgiveness. That's true unfairness if you want to go in that route. Not only that, but even in the book of Joshua, the rest, other parts of the Old Testament, God isn't wiping entire cities out left and right like we think when we think of the vengeful, wrathful Old Testament God. Anyone ever heard of Rahab? You guys know who Rahab is? Rahab was a resident of Jericho who served a false god, but when she heard that Israel, the people of Yahweh, the God who delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, was on their way to take Jericho as part of the promised land, you know what she said? She said, um, that sounds like a real God. I want to serve him not these false gods I've got in Jericho. So she did. She defected to Israel. She, she left Jericho and its false gods behind. She marries a dude named Salmon, which is a delicious fish, and she gives birth to Boaz, who fathers Obed, who fathers Jesse, who fathers David, who was promised to have the one true king come from his lineage. So Rahab, 
trusted God, forsake her false gods, and became the great, 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 I'm not sure how many great grandmothers of Jesus. That doesn't sound like God is all wrath and unfair to me. You know the story of Jonah and Nineveh. God was going to destroy Nineveh, and he told Jonah the prophet to let them know, and Jonah runs away. Do you know why Jonah runs away? He runs away because he knew if he preached coming judgment in Nineveh, the people would repent, and God would spare them because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He gets mad at God for forgiving the Ninevites. That's why he didn't want to go preach to them. His desire is not to destroy sinners. His desire is for us to be made right with him. But he also doesn't want us to mess around and keep the temptation of serving anything other than him in our midst because he has called us, our third point here, to be one holy people. And we see this play out in in, in the last three chapters, chapters 14 through 16, 17. I'm not going to read very much of this. It's a lot. It's good stuff. I'll explain it, but I'm not going to take the time to read it. But I will read uh, 14.2. It says, for you are a people holy to Yahweh your God, and Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, this should remind us of Deuteronomy 7.6. It's almost the exact same wording that's used there. God is establishing Israel as set apart, as different from the rest of the world. So what we're getting at in the last three chapters of today's sermon is basically an extrapolation of of going back to Deuteronomy 6.4, the greatest commandment of what it means to love Yahweh their God with all their heart, soul, and might. They're given commands on on how to be holy, how to be weird, and how they dress, how they treat their bodies and the food they eat, how they use their money, and how they order their time. Some Bible scholars have made the argument that these calls to holiness are really an expansion of the third commandment to not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, we normally think of that command pertaining to to not making oaths or vows uh, to God or in God's name, because then if we don't keep them, it's like we're making God unfaithful and a liar, and we know all his promises are yes and amen, right? On on an excellent podcast, I recommend you guys all write this down, to, to listen and subscribe to the Bible Talk by Nine Marks Podcasts, they, they slowly have been walking their way through all of Scripture. And I mean slowly. They just got to like Second Samuel, but they're breaking down every portion of Scripture, great study, great teaching, and showing how all of Scripture relates to itself and how it's all pointing to Jesus. Well, the guys on this, the pastors and scholars on Bible Talk, they, uh, they say that not taking the Lord's name in vain can also mean to not make his name worthless. And so they go on to say that that these commands to strive for holiness is a way to put into action the covenant relationship that they have made with God and show that God is not worthless, that their their, their relationship is not in vain, but it is actually what they strive and live for. So the rest of these chapters are all ways in how they love the Lord their God and count him as supreme in everything. They are all actions that flow from a, a circumcised heart, as Mike preached about last week in Deuteronomy 10. So we see commands at the beginning here. You might see the, the headings at the beginning of your sections of Scripture of what they can and can't eat in chapter 14, clean and unclean food. I'm not going to read all those for you. You can read them if you want later and know that hooven creatures are good and other ones are not. But what these food restrictions are about, let me give you the gist of it. This is not related to, to some diet thing that like God knew if they ate this way, they'd be healthier. And now like modern science proves that to be true. That's, that's not actually what's happening here. Um, what God is doing 
is he's telling them which food for Israel that they eat is going to make them look distinct, different, set apart from what everyone else does. What God is doing is giving his people a chance to remember every time that they sit down to eat, they are distinct from every other nation because he has chosen them to be different. So by eating different foods than everyone else, they remember, oh yeah, God has made us different because we don't eat what everybody else does. And those food laws remain in place all the way until Acts chapter 10, when Peter has a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven full of all animals, and Peter's commanded to eat anything. Why is he commanded to eat anything now? Well, because Israel is no longer distinct from the rest of the nations in Peter's day. Now, Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell inside any who believe in him, Jew or Gentile. Those nation boundaries, racial boundaries have been knocked down. So all food is acceptable to eat because now every time a Christian enjoys a meal, they are reminded Jesus came and died for the whole world, not just Israel. So as you enjoy lunch today, whatever you choose to eat, you can eat anything. All things are allowed to eat because, maybe not chocolate cake with gravy, because... Jesus has provided salvation for all people, not just a select, distinct group. Does that make sense of what's happening with the food laws? Okay. The next command you'll see says tithe, so that it's on how to give money. When, when the, we see the word tithe used, it, it means to give the first 10% of what the people have to God as an offering. It's almost like bringing a tribute to a king, and since God is the king of the universe, it would make sense that they would be commanded to do this. But if you read this whole section, you'll see that the purpose behind giving this tithe is to show that the people trust God will bless and take care of them, even if they are weird and live with only 90% of their salaries. In fact, what they do when they bring their tithes is they have a big old party. God loves to party, if you read the Bible. They celebrate the fact that God is the good provider of all things, and they have a proper reverence of his holiness and his blessings to them. Now, the word tithe, it never shows up in the New Testament. We use the word often here. Mike did this morning on Sunday mornings when we explain if you have your tithe and offerings uh, of how to give back to God what he's already given to us. And the first 10% of what we have going to God, that is a good practice. But do you know what the New Testament actually commands Christians when it comes to giving? Anybody know? Give generously. Give generously. That's a little more difficult. You tell me 10%, it's like check mark. I did 10%. What does give generously mean? It might mean more than 10% for some of you in this room. It might be that the point of giving is it starts to feel a little uncomfortable and hurt a little bit because we're not relying just on our own abilities to gather things, but we're relying on God to bless and take care of us. We should give generously to our church because we believe we're helping further the mission of the kingdom of God with those funds but we should be generous with everything we have because we are weird and we understand that this place is not our permanent home and all that we have is just what God has already given us and is not going with us to the next life. In chapter 15, we learn about the sabbatical year. So the people of God are be different in how they spend their money and also in how they spend their time. My pastor back in Kansas City used to say, if you give me five minutes with someone's checkbook and calendar, I could tell you what they value in worship. Now, nobody uses their checkbook anymore, but you'll get bank statement and a calendar. You're going to know what is important to that person, right? That makes sense. Well, God wants his people to be generous and forgiving to one another in the sabbatical year as a way to remember 
the generosity and forgiveness of him. Debts are to be wiped away. Slaves, or a better translation for us would be bond servants, are to not only be freed, but given something to help them as they leave. This, this is not like the evil, uh, uh, sinful past of slavery in America. These were people who couldn't afford to pay off a debt, so they joined a family and worked for them until they could. Some of them enjoyed that so much, they would just stay with that family forever because like, oh, they're taking care of me well. This is not how it went down here. If the debt wasn't paid after seven years, they're set free and they're given liberally from that family's home as a reminder of God's blessing of delivering Israel from Egypt and slavery. Again, this is all a picture of set apartness, of being different than how the other nations functioned. Finally, in chapter 16, the people are told to remember the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Now, what are these? Well, the Passover goes all the way back to the 10th plague in Egypt. Uh, God was going to kill the firstborn in every family unless they sacrificed an unblemished lamb and marked its blood on the posts of the doors of their house. The angel of the Lord would pass over these houses because they had trusted and believed the word of God, and so their faith brought salvation to their home. The Egyptians did not follow and believe, and so the loss of life led to Pharaoh finally allowing the Israelites to leave. So remembering the Passover feast each year was how Israel remembered the greatest miracle that God had given them or had performed in making them his people, making them a a new holy nation. The Feast of Weeks was celebrated seven weeks after the Passover and traditionally corresponded with seven weeks after the Passover event in Egypt, that that's when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. So uh, 50 days after Passover, 49 days, seven weeks, uh, the Israelites would have a meal remembering that God had given them his Ten Commandments to teach them his character and what it means to be a holy people. The Feast of Booths was a feast or festival to remind them of their time in their wilderness when God provided for and took care of them for 40 years. A booth was, it's not like a ticket booth, how we might think. A booth is like a tent or a a lean-to used for shelter. So keeping the Sabbath year and these three feasts are all pointing to the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. So why mention these feasts? What does this mean for us? Well, this is why the Bible is so amazing. I, I love this. What we're reading and studying in Deuteronomy is not just something we ignore or glance over. It's actually the framework for a greater picture of how God has always had a plan for our salvation and redemption. You've heard this, Jesus is the Passover lamb, right? He is the one without blemish, the one without sin, the one whose blood was shed on the wood of a cross instead of a wooden door frame so that we could be saved not from slavery in Egypt, but slavery to our own sin. And his death means that death itself passes over us as death is not the end for us. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can now live in eternity with him when our short life on this earth is over. And 50 days after Jesus died on the cross, uh, his disciples got together to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, or as we call it in Greek, Pentecost, which means 50 days. At Pentecost, in a room in a house in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit first came upon the apostles of Jesus as we read in Acts 2, and for the last 2,000 years, The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in the heart of all who confess that Jesus is Lord and the only hope of salvation. And the Feast of Booths reminds us that Jesus, who is God, he tabernacled, he lived, he tented, dwelled with us to live alongside us as a human so he could live a perfect life 
and be a perfect substitute for our rebellion and unholiness. In Matthew 17, uh, we have a story that I think directly relates to this. Let me read Matthew 17, 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You know what's happening here? Jesus reveals just a glimpse, a tiny picture of his full glory and power to these three apostles. And as he does, Moses and Elijah show up. This is a big deal, right? Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophet. So basically all of the history of Israel is bodily present, standing next to and hanging out and talking with Jesus. Peter, without thinking, says, let me make a tent, a booth for these guys so that they can stay with us and be with us because Moses and Elijah are back. You're on the same level with them, Jesus. Like, this is awesome. But Jesus is not on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's what Deuteronomy is pointing to. He is all that is left because he is the one we listen to. And he is the one who gives insight and understanding that, that this book written by 40 different authors over 3,500 years, has one story, that Jesus is God, and that he desires nothing more than to be with his creation, which is made possible through his sacrifice as the Passover lamb, his resurrection showing power over death and sin, and the gift of his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, to transform us into weird, different, holy people who are insured of a future sanctuary with the one true God in heaven for eternity. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your plan of redemption stretching back to the very beginning. I thank you that you have given us your word to see these beautiful pictures of how it all connects and goes together. God, I thank you for loving us just because you love us. I thank you for pouring your wrath not on us, but on your own son, Jesus, so that instead of facing your wrath, we can be set apart as a holy people, uh, different than the world around us, as ones who have been forgiven and reconciled to you. God, I pray if there's someone here who has not yet put their trust in you, that something about this sermon or the songs that we're singing or as we prepare to take communion will just really... Uh, just tug on their heart, and they'd realize, man, God, I need you. I cannot do this myself. God, we also confess that we are a people that, while we strive to live holy lives, we fall woefully short. I pray that you would be patient with us, that we'd be quick to repent in the times that we fail, and that we'd have an eye, uh, a heart for the people around us of a fallen world of recognizing that they need you just as much as we need you. I pray these things through Jesus' name. Amen.